Hello and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today we're delighted to hear from Mr. El Haj Asi, Secretary General of International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies and recently named co-chair of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. We've asked El Haj to join us today to speak on several topics, including lessons learned from the 2014 Ebola crisis, IFRC's role in the current outbreak, and the newly announced Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. El Haj, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us uh, here in Washington, D.C. We're delighted to have you. Thanks for having me. So let's start. Just say a few words about yourself. You've, you've uh, played a leadership role um, you know, over the last uh, decade and a half, two decades, in many different venues, many of them within the UN system, in the response to HIV and to other bi- big um, ha- demanding uh, health challenges. Just say a few words about your own background, which is remarkable and, and, uh, and brings you to this point. And then tell us a little bit about the, the IFRC. Uh, for many of our listeners, uh, as important as IFRC is, they may not be as familiar with the way its mission and how it goes about doing its work. Thank you. Yeah, let me start. I am I'm a son of the Sahel uh, from Senegal. I grew up uh, witnessing a lot of hardship, you know, caused you know, by disease. Somehow I'm a survivor. Maybe thanks to these, you know, big wounds on the upper arm that I was one of the few that benefited, you know, from uh, vaccination. Witness uh, members' families, you know, friends losing lives, you know, because of treatable diseases, all the way from malaria, you know, to measles, and lately because of HIV. So I then worked with an international organization based in Senegal called Environment and Development action in the third world mm-hmm. and in charge of the health program. At a time, you know, where there was no drugs, at a mm-hmm. time there was no ARVs, at a time when um, testing, you know, was something that was not accessible, mm-hmm. where, you know, having HIV was a quasi death sentence. And then we could see with naked eyes in our communities how devastating it was. Mm-hmm. That was a turning point, you know, for me devoting, you know, most of my programs at the time and also my volunteer time towards that. And that's from there I joined the UNAIDS, you know, program, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. And in the same spirit of serving people in need, fighting disease, alleviating human suffering, and improving quality of life, which is pretty much guiding me all the way to where I am today, which is the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, in 191 countries today, we have either a Red Cross Society or a Red Crescent Society, all guided by the same fundamental principles of volunteer action, humanity, impartiality, neutrality, to serve you know, people in need, particularly those that are affected by shocks, hazards, and then diseases. Those 191 national societies come together under an umbrella of a federation, which is the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, that is coordinating their work, providing technical assistance and capacity, and if any national society is facing a scale and a magnitude of a shock and crisis, we mobilize the force of the network to come to rescue and an accompany to that response. That's the organization now I have the honor to serve and we're present you know, on the ground while I'm speaking 
dealing with the many of the challenges you know that we all are concerned about so um of course within the federation would be the american red cross indeed the american red cross you know is uh, one of them uh, responding to the shocks and hazards in the united states of america but also participating in our network of solidarity to provide support to neighboring countries as well as countries far away from here you know like when we have a Ebola outbreak in west africa on the democratic republic of congo on the t- on the other way around you know when uh, the the united states were hit last year you know with you know the Harvey and maria Harvey, maria in florida and in texas we were deploying also teams from other countries to come to support as a sign of solidarity and also paying back you know to america what america has been providing to others you know when they're facing a similar hardship so when we have something like a, you know a colossal catastrophe in texas florida puerto rico and you mobilize are you bringing in teams that are working directly with the american red cross yes teams? we do uh we brought in uh, teams from the mexican red cross you mm-hmm. know to work with the hispanic uh, populations mm-hmm. you know in florida as well as in uh, texas yeah we brought in uh, a uh, team to establish a base camp you know working together with the american red cross so that the volunteers that were mobilized across the country you know can be housed you know in a one base camp in order to provide yeah. you know the services we brought in teams you know from places including even haiti you know that had uh, skills in creole creole language you know to work with those affected communities you know in both florida as well as you know in texas and that is our usual modus operandi you know that we have in every country where our national society is responding to a natural shock and others that is way beyond you know the capacity at that time yes thank you well as an american thank you thank you for the role you've played and thank you america for providing the same help mm-hmm. across the world as well I mean we've uh, we've read a lot about the 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 courageous role that many of the societies have played. I mean we've been very active on Syria over the last several years and of course the Syrian uh, Red Crescent has has lost many many people over the last 7 years uh in putting itself um, at huge risk uh in trying to bring relief in that crisis. Indeed and it's very sad you know to measure really the uh courage and the proximity of our volunteers through the numbers you will lose on the line of duty but the reality is you know that where it is most dangerous to work and that's where the needs are greatest and of course that is not coming without risk and unfortunately we also seeing that parties in conflict are not our usual traditional ones you know that are making the humanitarian space you know shrink Yeah. 65 volunteers and staff you know, lost their lives while trying to save lives in Syria that is too much way too much by any standard but the list can go on you know the dozens we lost in Yemen the other dozens you know we lost in Afghan in Afghanistan the dozen in Central African Republic most recently so we keep on calling on all parties that are involved in conflict that they must respect you know the humanitarian space and then the humanitarian you know workers and then infra- and the health infrastructure should not be a target yeah. and that is totally unacceptable while we do that we will always be there on the side of those in need to accompany them to respond to their needs because that's what 
principled humanitarian action is about. Well, you know, this is a topic that's very close to us. I mean, we did this documentary, The New Barbarianism, mm -hmm. on the surge of violence against humanitarian workers last year with a special focus on Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria. We did a session at the Munich Security Conference, which you kindly joined, which was trying to put a spotlight on this problem. Yeah, and thank you for doing that. We're using your documentary and even your advocacy to continue to shed a light you know, on that. And we need the different levels of interventions you know, the advocacy, you know, the evidence that we're bringing on the table, you know, calling on, you know, all, you know, that have the duty, you know, to care for protection, you know, those also that has to be held accountable to respect commitments, you know, that are being made. And unfortunately today, and then we may come back later to that, too many commitments made, too many commitments broken, and, you know, there should be a certain level of accountability and, you know, a system in place to hold people accountable for that. All right, let's turn to the issue of Ebola. Um, the Federation has jumped right in and playing a major role uh, in, the res in the outbreak that we see today in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But stepping back to the 2014-2015 outbreak in West Africa, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia played a very important role. Tell us a bit about the role that you play because it's very special seems to me, in terms of community-based engagement, trust, access, um, and, and, and one of the hard lessons of, of the outbreak uh, and the tragedies associated with it in West African 14 was we hadn't done very well on that community engagement and that trust building and knowledge. And I think we need more of the type of engagement that you bring to the table. So tell us a bit about how you operate in those sorts of settings. What's the value added? And what did we learn from 2014 and 15 that you're now carrying forward into Congo? Ebola came to West Africa in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia and found us there already. Communities, knowing the Red Cross volunteers who are members of the same community, speaking the same language, understanding the culture, and then being accepted. And we were there during Ebola, and we are still there after. That long-term partnership with communities, that permanent presence, and that engagement is critical. Because it's very difficult to build trust in the middle of a crisis. It's very difficult to build trust in the middle of a shock. And that's the reason why it was very important you know, for Red Cross National Societies and volunteers to be with communities to address with them what is matter, what does matter to them at that very moment. And when Ebola came, then first of all, we have to dispel a lot of myth. Mm -hmm. Help people understand this is not your usual fever, you know, that you know. Help also dispel myth, you know, of others, you know, from religious groups, you know, to other, you know, kind of a congregation. We wanted to interpret it in a different way. But also, helping communities to deal with difficult issues. What is the difficult issues in that context? Here we are convincing you to take your loved ones you know, to a treatment center with a high probability that in 80% of the cases will not bring them back alive. Convincing communities you know, that in this situation you will not be able to mourn the same way you used to. Right. You cannot you know, wash and then bid farewell to your deceased loved one the way you used to you have also to entrust it you know, with somebody that will be doing it according to your culture, according to your religious belief, 
and that is in a way that is safe and dignified. And it required also a number of additional things that is building on that knowledge of the community. Changing the color of body bags from black to white, because that is what is more acceptable mm -hmm. to the communities. Mm -hmm. Changing the terminology, dead body management, to safe and dignified burials. And then just let them know, we're not here to manage dead bodies. We're here to, in a safe and dignified way, accompany deceased people to their last place of rest. And that is a continuation of a humanitarian journey that we interact with communities. It is about convincing communities also to refer cases. It is about having them to cooperate for contact tracing. Then that acceptance you know, grew and grew so that we turn from resistance to cooperation, mm -hmm. you know, from exclusion and denial you know, to embracing and accepting. And the result of that was Ebola killed about 11,000 people in West Africa. Our teams were called in to bury 52,000 people. That means all the many of the uh, cases of death during that period that may be due to malaria or tuberculosis or anything else, but because of the fear on the one hand and the trust on the other to our teams, then they were called to make you know, all the barriers. That one of those, according to one of the Lancet publications, that has contributed to avert 10,000 additional deaths. But what we have learned there is early action is important. It is not about early warning. It's not only about early alert, but the early action that goes you know, with it. Mm. We know that in those places what is happening, you know, there is a, we talk about the weak health system. Well, in some of those places, there may not even be a health system to start with. In those places where it is happening, there's a total breakdown in governance between the relationship, you know, between the government, the kind of a formal governance structure, and the community-based one. So trust has to be rebuilt. But one way to do it is also to fulfill the promise, you know, that are being made. And so many made all the way from primary health care to health for all to the year 2000 mm -hmm. and so, and including the new ones that we are making. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, coming to the point that you mentioned before, the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, that accountability is there, that we monitor, you know, what we promise and what we deliver, but we don't or not only passively do it, but also we incentivize action and I'm glad, you know, to see that now in Democratic Republic of Congo, some of those lessons learned are being applied and partnership was going on now between WHO, the IFRC, MSF, and then other key stakeholders on the ground. And then we hope that we will apply those lessons in a much more productive way, in a much more positive way this time. So when you describe the response... Uh, this round to the outbreak in DRC. Now, this is the ninth outbreak in DRC. DRC has had quite a record of going back to the first case, 1976, of of responding to these to these uh, very dangerous outbreaks. What have you observed in terms of the changed practices of the major players, including the the, the I mean the, the the government of Congo, which was obviously vitally important. If you go back to some of the earlier cases, including the first one uh, that gave the name you yeah. know, to the outbreak, which is an Ebola along the Ebola River, it kind of quarantined itself, you know, contained, self-contained itself, with very high mortality, mm -hmm. and then did not get you know, out right, yeah. 
then and then there. So you have an episodical, you know, type of you know such outbreaks that was in a similar pattern. But what we're starting seeing now lately, and that's why it was quite revealing what we had in West Africa, it is that it was getting urban for the first time. Mm-hmm. It touches, you know, on a number of countries, you know, at the same time. Because of the combination of a number of factors, climate change played a role, I believe. Unplanned urbanization played the role. We are more and more, with our increased demography, getting to the natural habitat you know, of the fauna. The fauna lives with the viruses and then bacteria. We cannot survive you know, with them. The bat lives with the Ebola virus and then leave. The green monkey with HIV and leave. We human, we cannot. More we keep on now sharing the same habitat and then infringing into that because of our own human making, of course, we get more exposed. In addition to that, then we have a world which is more mobile than before, more interconnected than before, more global than before, that we can reach, you know, any part of anywhere, you know, to another extreme, you know, within only hours. So that's the reason why now we are seeing more and more, you know, those outbreaks getting out of the natural reservoir getting it into into the urban settings. And mm-hmm. that's what happens also in DRC. Bandaka is a kind of a semi-urban you know, setting. But we have Picoro and then uh, all the other places that are even more remote. And if we see the type of exchanges on a daily basis alongside, you know, the river and the different, you know, points, you know, of entry, you know, one can fear, you know, a propagation that is much faster compared to what we used to have before. And that is the reason why this time, what is different? To start going right at the epicenter. It is, it doesn't matter how much you invest in an epidemic, an epidemic outbreak. It is in the communities where it happens that it can be contained. Intervening there, and we are glad to see the WHO made an effort to very early on recognize the early alert and an early sign and get there. We are pleased to see that we did not uh, experience the usual denial and resistance, you know, from the government. And quite the, the opposite. Quite the opposite, which is really we should salute because we did not, you know, waste time, you know, convincing right. and then turning from denial to denial to acceptance. We also saw that partnership was uh, right there from the beginning with IFRC alongside WHO, MSF doing their usual excellent work, mm-hmm. which we already salute. And uh, that, we think, you know, coupled with one innovation that we've never had before, which is an introduction for vaccine, mm-hmm. and identifying who those candidates, you know, will be engaging with the community so that there is acceptance and not rejection, you know, of it, and creating an enabling environment, you know, for a response is a huge you know, progress in compared to what we have, you know, before. But we're still learning because it is in a fragile setting, mm-hmm. in a large countries, in very remote areas, mm-hmm. and with all the difficulties of access, data collection, oh. reporting, communicating it, etc. that is the reality of the terrain that we will have to deal with. But again, good progress, you know, being made. Our commitment is unwavering alongside our partners, and then we hope and then really believe that with all those efforts, you know, we'll be able to contain it. Many people um, uh, were very encouraged that we have a vaccine now. But vaccines are, are, are tricky in terms of, particularly when you're introducing them into a community for the first time. 
And in this area of Equatur province, your immunization rates among children, very low, and adults, fairly low, and certainly in the remote, remoter areas. So the trust issue that you talked about in the community-based liaison, if you're bringing a vaccine in and and attempting to do this, and then the first phase of the of the vaccine deployment has been reasonably successful. It is very successful, I would say, you know, given the circumstances, given the fact it is a new vaccine. But it's all about again community engagement. It's about language. It's about communication. It's about trust. You know, when we talk about this vaccine in our sophisticated in a sophisticated way, in our midst, we talk about experimental vaccine. That's not what you use when you get to the community level. It's about, you know, engaging communities to find the best available solution for them at this point in time. And also you realize that, you know, communities want also the best for themselves, regardless of... Are you seeing much fear and mistrust coming forward? Is it requiring a special effort with this new vaccine? No, no. In the contrary, I think with the preparedness and engagement, it is a much more acceptance, you know, much more participation you know, then we could have, you know, witness even yeah. uh, in other places where we're experiencing a lot of difficulties with the polio vaccine and, you yeah. know, the like. So it's a good experience, you know, we're having. But again, we should not be uh, complacent and let our guard down. The community engagement is a continuous process. There will always be rumors. There will always be all kind of myth. There will always be a kind of a misconception that we need to be aware of and then continuously you know, monitor and continue to engage with the communities. And I think we're on a good footing right now. We need to preserve that and then continue to nurture it. Yeah. I think we're also advantaged. I mean, uh, one of the quiet factors, I think, that accounts for the success that we've had so far is that you had this core of trained and skilled, experienced Ghanaian uh, uh, immunizers you know, people who had been there doing the field trials, who then got transported into the Congolese. So they came with that experience around how to explain this to communities. They came out of a francophone background. They were able to operate in in a variety of different um, environments. Now, one thing that I think worries people in DRC is that when you get outside of the urban centers, a lot of worry about the urban center and whether it jumps by river transport into some of the other major urban centers, and that's being watched very carefully. But then you have this other opposing environment, which is the the vast rural and uh, areas of Equator that are very remote and oftentimes quite inaccessible. Mm-hmm. You have 30 to 40 percent of your population as a pygmy population with its own special characteristics stigma or marginalization, um, issues in terms of cultural and language barriers and the like. Has the, uh, has the IFRC gotten pulled directly into trying to figure out what's going on in these communities? Because to some degree, we're still in the dark as to how many chains of transmission there may be in some of the more remote areas. Yeah. To some degree, but on the other end, you know, coming back to our volunteers, they are from those same communities. Yeah. So we don't deploy Alien folks, yeah. or Red Cross volunteers, you know, f- that are going into an exotic, you know, pygmy population. So 
We have PIGME volunteers. Mm -hmm. We have 60,000 volunteers in DRC. Mm -hmm. So we recruit uh, in these kind of situations, you know, additional ones that want to put a service. We train and equip, you know, them, you know, to work in the so. The language issue so is solved. The acceptance and then the trust, you know, has already been there, and you know that engagement, you know, needs to continue. So, the remoteness that is a reality of the terrain, and we all are experiencing it. But the volunteers will live already there, so they don't need to move to get there. So, of course, we come in with additional uh, expertise, you know, additional equipment, you know, additional training, you know, to to do that. So we cannot underestimate, you know, the challenges of the terror, you know, there. You know, the anybody who knows the size of DRC, anybody even who knows the size, you know, of the equatorial yeah. region that can be compared to many countries or size of many countries, you know, in this world. So it's a reality. You know, moving, you know, from uh, either um, uh, uh, Kinshasa, you know, to Bandaka or Bandaka to the epicenter can take you up to 24 hours, yeah. you know, that you right, you know, over motorcycles and, you know, all kinds of, you know, means of transport, you know, to be there. But again, you know, humanitarian response and emergency response is to be there where it is hardest to reach, where the most vulnerable are, and that's what we equip ourselves and our volunteers and our national societies to do. Thank you. Let's shift to our last topic, which is the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. Now, this idea uh, was rolled out this board on May 24th at the World Health Assembly. Uh, leadership at the WHO, Dr. Tedros, leadership at the World Bank, uh, Jim Kim, Dr. Kim, launched this new mechanism to strengthen global health security. Um, and this idea had been in discussions after the Ebola crisis. There were many different studies, um, six or seven major international studies. We participated in some of those. There was oftentimes the idea put forward about creating these new kind of mechanisms. Some of them had been uh, tested and developed by uh, Harvard and the National Academy of Medicine, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, Beth Cameron's talking about developing an index. So it was very heartening to see uh, WHO and the World Bank come forward uh, in this way. And you've been uh, named as one of the co-chairs of this effort, along with Gro Brundtland, the former head of WHO, former head of state uh, of Norway. So congratulations on that appointment. So tell us, that, let's start first, what's the mandate? What's the mandate function? How will it operate? I realize some of this is still to be determined, right? I mean, this is a new organization, barely a few weeks. Indeed. And uh, as you rightly say, you know, after the uh, Ebola response, you know, we were already exploring a number of mechanisms. The then Secretary General Ban Ki Moon established a task force, a global health, you know, task force, you know, to work, you know, on drawing from those lessons, you know, put already the beginning of a kind of a monitoring, you know, system to uh, incentivize action, you know, among the all key stakeholders, but also monitor progress on how we are doing and what we're not doing, and then have the pressure point, you know, to do the right thing. And um, that global task force, you know, was, you know, sunsetting. And then we thought there should be a new mechanism, and the uh, leadership of the World Bank and then WHO came together and then proposed this model, which we believe could be a continuation of what was started, you know, under the UN Secretary General's you know leadership. But more importantly, even to 
uh, elevate it you know, at another level. But uh, by putting an independent mechanism, mm-hmm. they're bringing all the stakeholders around the table. Of course, people from government, you know, people from the private sector, people from the humanitarian uh, fields, and then civil society, but in an independent manner. So to, to, to monitor, to uh, assess, and also to report you know, on that, that will imply the number of activities that will include maybe studies you know, that to be conducted, you know, collection and sharing of data, looking at bottlenecks you know, as they relate to procurement and supply management, looking at early warning, early alert, and then the early action that must you know, go with it, looking at also the investment for preparedness you know, that is required you know, where it is happening and then monitoring that in an independent manner and use it not as a passive observation, but as an incentive also for action by all key partners So in that regard. So I feel honored and very privileged you know, to be part of that alongside Dr. Brundtland. And we are now uh, working to finalize you know, the membership you know, of this board. Mm-hmm. And we are planning to get already the first meeting in September. and. While that is happening, also we are establishing the secretariat that will be hosted in WHO, but will be serving in an independent manner, the same way that board will also be fulfilling, you know, its independent task. Yes. Well, I would think you're going to need to um, uh, work hard to make sure that you're maintaining that independence. I mean, given that the secretariat's going to be at WHO, so in some ways you're, you know, you're going to need to struggle with that. With, with that tension. Um, also, the, tried, uh, the whole question of ha- finding good, credible data on these, on a regular, na- you know, on a regular annual basis. The Global Health Security Agenda has had some success at working with WHO and merging into a joint program, you know, these uh, joint evaluation exercises. That data is only every four to five years, really, they're looking. So it's a highly ambitious program you're talking about in trying to provide the world with regularly updated insights into where are the big gaps in the preparedness that exists out there. Indeed, indeed it is. You know, and the you know, you rightly stressed the independence and uh, I, Dr. Brundtland and the uh, upcoming, you know, board members to be announced soon mainly accepted this position because of its independent nature. And um, I hope that, you know, when we publish, you know, the uh, membership, you know, nobody will doubt about, you know, the independence, you know, of those people, yeah. you know, who accepted to carry on, you know, this uh, responsibility with the one and only purpose is, you know, to serve in that spirit. Yes. On the uh, secretariat, it's just an administrative setting. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, you need to be facilitated. It could be in WHO or anywhere else. So it is in WHO. Mm-hmm. It is fine. So uh, if we notice, you know, for whatever reason that it was not serving the purpose, we'll exercise the same independence, you know, to put it where we would like it, you know, to be. On uh, the data and uh, the huge uh, challenge, you know, in front of us, so... My comfort is that we're not starting, you know, from scratch. Mm-hmm. You know, we have uh, quite a number of, you know, partnerships, you know, that are ongoing. We have a number of actors that are very critical and very crucial that needs to be more involved and then be part of it. And I think, you know, that combination, you know, will allow us, you know, to have a better base to operate from and, again, you know, to continue to strive, you know, for, 
better data, better collection, better sharing, and also the independent reporting you know, of that. So we are hopeful and we are very, very committed you know, to make it happen along those lines. More on that after the meeting in September. Will you be covering biosecurity and biosafety issues in the monitoring? So that is on the table right now. But again, you know, when we get to the first meeting in September, we'll flesh that all out and then, you know, carve what will be the scope and then the limits, you know, of what we yeah. do. Because it can go, you know, all over. We will need at one point in time to scope it, you know, right mm -hmm. in order to deliver again on what we will be promising there. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Thank you so much. It's, it's exciting, and we really look forward to it. And it's, I'm thrilled that you're able to play this leadership role. Thank it's you. a great honor to serve. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of our Take as Directed podcast, featuring El Haj Asi, Secretary General of IFRC, and co-chair of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. We invite you to subscribe to Take as Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page. Thank you. Mm -hmm.